Welcome to Careers for the Blind. I'll be your host, Harrison Hoyes. And in this interview series, we'll be having conversations with blind and visually impaired people discussing their career paths. We'll have an opportunity to hear about the struggles they had along the way, advice that made them more effective in their careers, and in general, what has helped them lead happy and successful lives. In November 2020, I had a conversation with Kevin Zott. Kevin has had a few different careers, from strength coach, training for the Olympics in judo, and he ultimately found his passion in sales, where he is now the head of sales for the New York, New Jersey area at Cigna. Here's my conversation with Kevin. Thanks so much for taking some time to speak with me and share your story. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up? Sure. Uh, yeah, born and raised in Clifton, New Jersey, uh, 1963, so I'm 57 today, and had a pretty normal childhood. Dad was an engineer. Mom was a homemaker for the most part. I'm the middle son of three. Uh, my older brother, Ed, and I are Irish twins, meaning we're less than a year apart. And then my younger brother's about four and a half years younger than me. Um, and so probably up until the age of 10, there was no issues. Uh, my vision was 20-20. I was playing baseball, a pitcher third base, you know, normal active kid. Then also around 10 years of age, uh, started bringing home some weird homework assignments off the board. And through a process of probably 10 or 12 doctors in a year, they finally diagnosed me with Stargardt's disease, which okay. in the end wound up being an incorrect diagnosis. But I have a very, very atypical form of RP and macular degeneration. So I have all all peripheral vision, no central vision, but yet it is an RP-based condition. So as you know, traditional RP goes outside in, Mm -hmm. not not from the inside. So I had pretty functional vision uh, up and through high school. I played sport and I played uh, 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 wrestled and played football all through high school as a a starter of the wrestling program and on the the football program as well. Um, So I've you know, through that period of time, I was, you know, like I said, pretty highly functional. I could still see maybe a football in the air as long as the background was good. And I would also be able to play basketball and things like that. So, you know, those types of things, you know, I could still do. And not to the nth degree, still needed large print materials, reel-to-reel tapes back in the old day, large print typewriters, closed-circuit TVs. These are all apparatuses that I used back then. Uh, large print calculators, you know, things like that to get through school. Uh, I wasn't the most focused high school student. Uh, at the end of the day, I was pretty much a jock and kind of leaned into my blindness as an excuse to some degree, but I had some good supportive mechanisms around me to push me and challenge me. Mm-hmm. So that that allowed me to get from from high school into college. And I played football at St. Lawrence University, Division Three school. So I went to play football there. At the same time, around ninth grade, 10th grade, I started to compete in the United States Association of Blind Athletes, athletics. And so it was good because it gave me a balance of understanding, you know, being in an able-bodied environment. There's only only disabled kid in the whole school, Clifton High School, which was the second largest school in the state. Wow. You know, and, and also going to this environment where I saw people with Worse conditions doing more than me and better conditions doing less than me. So it really gave me a nice kind of litmus test to say, hey, there's more potential here. There's more balance. And at the same time, my family always being a good supportive structure was they didn't let me get away with anything. I had to do all the same chores my brothers had to do. 
even you know cutting the lawn and that and all my all my dad would come back afterwards and say all right you missed this spot you missed that spot i said the only job my dad would not let me do is paint the house he drew the line at that so (laughs) (laughs) he figured figured that one that one may not work out the way he wants to so uh not quite the lesson he's trying to teach me but uh yeah so you know that, that took me up through college and Honestly, coming after college, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was a bio major. I did a, an extra year of teaching concentration, so I had that option. So a good friend that I met, and I know I've done a previous podcast, he was Richard Ruffalo. And so when I met Rich in 1983, 1984, through, through Blind Sport, uh, he, he was a teacher at Bellevue High School. And so when I came out, I just started substitute teaching and coaching at Bellevue High School thinking that's maybe what I wanted to do uh, for a little while. And an interesting twist, my younger brother is a very good athlete, and he wound up getting a full scholarship to Penn State University for football. He was a number one recruit in the country, offensive lineman. And when he went to that school, he started training with the strength coach, and he kept arguing with the strength coach about their philosophies and his philosophies. And the strength coach said, well, who gave you these crazy ideas? And it was my brother Kevin, because to backtrack, my dad – was very supportive of us. He wasn't an athlete himself, but he gave up both of, the, of his garage, garage, you know, garages in order for us to put weights in there and train. So we had, you know, a whole neighborhood, 30, 40 guys who would train in that, that, that garage. Wow. And, and he, and he did it because he was like, listen, at least I knew where you guys were, you know? So our house was kind of a gathering house for a lot of things. And, and so, you know, from that standpoint, you know, I, I did a lot of strength training. I really get into weightlifting. I enjoyed it. Um, obviously I had decent results with it. So, you know, I was, I was David's strength coach when he was younger. And so the assistant strength coach at Penn state called me one day and said, Hey, I have a graduate assistantship. What do you think? And I went to Richie, you know, I was kind of my, my mentor and said, listen, you can always come back and teach, but you can't always get a paid master's. So I went to Penn state. So I visited on the 14th of July and was on campus by August 6th. You know, I applied, I got accepted and was in. And that kind of gave me a whole different direction in life. So I did that for two years. I was a strength coach in graduate school for all the programs. So we're also working with the football programs at Penn State. I did my graduate work in exercise physiology. Uh, One of my regrets is I did, I finished the classwork. I never finished my thesis. You know, Richie still busts my chops today about that. But (laughs) um, yeah, a little twist of face in personal life. I had gotten married and divorced during this period of time. So I was kind of, you know, kind of a little off my feet there for a little bit. But I uh, eventually got a full-time role with Penn State as a strength coach and did that uh, up until 1997-98. When and did you just, start that, though? I started – I did my graduate work from 87 to 89. Okay. And then I was, you know, a, a couple little hops in between, but eventually came back to Penn State uh, and, and started with the university full-time, making a whopping, yes, $26,000 a year. Uh, but loved what I was doing, loved working with the athletes and all the programs. And at that point, I was really working with all the programs except football and basketball. But the other 26 varsity sports and 60 club sports, you know, I was overseeing in about seven different facilities, but really enjoyed it. I mean, it's what I love to do and enjoyed it. And, you know, for a while, I, I was really satiated with it. At the same time, in, in, in 93, the Paralympics had dropped wrestling as a sport and picked up judo as a sport in the 1988 Seoul game. So I competed in blind sport from basically 76, 77, up and through 84. And my first international competition was 84. What was called then the game sort of physically disabled. Now it's called the Paralympic Games. 
Uh, after that, you know, I competed a couple more times up until 87, 88. And then I was in grad school. I'm like, okay, it's time to move on. Check the box, move on. I got married in 91, you know, so I was like, all right, yeah, I'm kind of beyond this. Well, you know, I'm sitting around there one day and also my good friend, Jim Mastro, who was an alternate Olympic team in Greco-Roman wrestling back in the 72 and 76 games, totally blind PhD, was a, prof a professor at Bemidji University. He kind of was one of my mentors and he said, hey, why don't you try judo? Why don't you come out? Now, as a kid, I had played judo for a little bit, but, you know, got frustrated after six or eight months and, and wound up quitting. So you know, I came back to it, started training, you know, it, with the sport, enjoyed it very much. Uh, being a wrestler and a grappler, you know, it was a kind of a natural. And so did that for a while and trained with the assistant wrestling coach at Penn State, had a, had a judo club. So started training with him and working out with him. And then also I got exposed to the games and went out in 96, uh, wanted to get in a silver medal. Uh, then I started competing nationally against Able Body, and I wound up beating the number one ranked heavyweight in a tournament uh, in 1997. It was the largest international tournament uh, in North America and South America. It was held at Colorado Springs, Colorado, at the training center. And I beat the number one ranked heavyweight, and they basically invited me to be the first disabled athlete to be a resident athlete at the training center. So kind of made a decision. I was 34 years old, and I'm sitting there saying to myself, what am I going to do? I mean, I, I, I could always work. I'd always had this opportunity, you know, time clock is ticking. I'm already old for this game. So I decided to kind of, you know, pursue my dream. I've always loved to watch the Olympic games. Always loved track and field was one of my loves and always you know, looked at Brian Ofield and Al Orta and these, these heroes and would love to do that. Here was my window to go try to get that done. So I, I wound up quitting my job and moving out to Colorado Springs and training full time to try to make the Olympic team. And, Worked my way up as high as number two in the country against able body competitors. Uh, unfortunately, took a neck injury, had to be off the mats for about six or seven months recovering. And by the time I came back, I, I, I just didn't get it done at the end of the day. I went about fifth in the Olympic trials uh, against able body, but still at the Paralympics, uh, you know, in my sights. And career-wise, what came became an interesting twist, which leads to me where I wound up today. So I was basically a sponsored athlete while I was out there. Uh, an insurance company called Hartford Insurance started a world-class disabled uh, athletic team that came and spoke on their behalf. So in 1994, I applied for the team. I became part of the team, and I started speaking all around the country on their behalf. And as I got exposed to these people, and this is a story I tell today to you know, my, my peers and the people I work with, I said, yeah, I kept meeting these sales reps, you know, and sales is a natural for competitors, right, if, you know, because it's competitive. And I always wanted a job that if I'm better than you, I want to make more than you. If I'm twice as good as you, I want to make twice as much. You know, I don't want to get the 3% increase when someone else is getting the 2% increase. I wanted to, you know, if you were making 100, I want to make 200. You know, that's just the way I was. And so sales is a natural, obviously, a lot of competitors and athletes, they go into sales. So I was part of this team, got exposed to these sales reps across the country, and finally realized, like, these guys aren't that smart, and they're doing pretty well. I think I can do this. So I asked, you know, my liaison on the team to try to get me in. And eventually over a period of time, I was hired on, you know, with them at 2000, trained in Denver with, with the, the office out there. And then basically eventually came to New York City to start my career with uh, in sales with, with group benefits. Basically, I sell group insurance for life and disability programs. So that's what I still do today. I manage the New York, New, New Jersey office for Cigna insurance today. Um, and I have about 15 people on our team 
And it's a, a really enjoyable experience because, you know, now I'm back to kind of coaching, you know, it's a sales world, but I'm coaching other people in sales and client management uh, in order to hopefully, you know, get good results on an annual basis. All right. All right. Fantastic. All right. That's, uh, that's a lot to, to, to go through. Let's, let's go back a little bit and talk about your, your accommodation in high school. You, you mentioned several, several different pieces of technology that you were using. Uh, can you just kind of go through that for me one more time? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When I first got exposed, you know, when I was in you know, fourth grade, one of the wisest things my mom said to the commission of the blind in New Jersey, which was a great resource for me, was teach him how to type, you know, cause he's going to learn how you know, he's going to need that going forward. So I first learned how to type. So as a fourth, fifth grader, I did a lot of my work on the typing basis. I had back then the old school reel to reel tape. So you had to get your books a year beforehand, you know, send them to the commission. They had people record them and I would be using that. And I also had good resource centers. You know, they always had people that would assist in, in my elementary or now, you know, I was going grammar school with the elementary schools and in my middle school, I had good resources. And so I always had that assistance along the way. I also had large print books, which became a little bit of a problem. My, my junior high school was a little bit of a rough environment. And here's this, you know, legally blind kid. At that point, I was a little bit chubby. I would have, it wouldn't kind of, kind of find my athletic body quite yet because after I couldn't play baseball anymore, I really didn't do anything. Um, and I had to carry on a briefcase to carry my large print books around the classrooms. So it made me stand out a little bit. And so guys would try to pick on me. Well, you know, good thing is about nine out of 10 times I came up on top of those situations. So people kind of started to leave me alone. Because yeah. I had a little bit of, you know, half Polish, half Irish. So I'm a little bit stubborn. I got a little bit of a little bit of an attitude. So uh, I don't back down very easily. Uh, so it was kind of interesting. I kind of established myself. And then when I went out for freshman football, because my brother went out for football, I figured, why not? I was one of the bigger guys. And during that that practice, like when I first showed up to the, to, to the field, the coaches didn't know what to do with me. They never had a, a you know, blind athlete before I go out for football. And so through a process of, you know, trial and error, I wound up going from not being on the starting lineup to eventually being on the starting lineup and then be on the strong side of the offensive line. So that was a right tackle, which is always kind of the, the strong side of the, the team. So, you know, I just proved myself over trial and error and, and you know, coaches figured it out. The one thing I appreciate, they had an open mind. So that support yeah. mechanism helped me along the way, you know, the coaches and athletics and having that team along the way. And then by the time I went into college, I had a CC, I mean, high school, had a CCTV, had a large print uh, calculator. Uh, back then too, I had enough vision where they used to use a yellow sheet. So even with normal size print, if you put a yellow sheet over it, it would, it would increase the contrast. And I had enough vision where I could use that tool as well in classroom. And then in those situations for tests and things that, that didn't work, I would obviously do tests with the proctor and or the teachers, you know, I'd have to sit in the classroom with the teachers. Um, but beyond that, I wasn't a cane user. My mobility was still strong enough. I really didn't need any of that, those type of apparatus. By the time with the college, I'm sorry. No, that, that's, I was just going to say that that's really impressive that you were the only person with any kind of uh, vision impairment in your school district, you said, right? Or, yes. or and, yeah. and you were receiving incredible accommodation. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's a common combination of the fact that you were the only person so they could focus a lot of their attention on you specifically. Um, but having probably no very limited experience with helping a visually impaired person, which is, it's amazing to me that you were the only person. Um, yeah. But that's really incredible to hear. Well, it's interesting because my mom had a lot to do with it. She was a very industrious person. And 
when it, when it first diagnosed me, they made the suggestion, should he go to, you know, school for blind students? And her, my dad and her sat down and said, listen, he's going to kind of compete in the world someday. Might as well start now. And that simple decision, you know, with a, it was a lot of insight, uh, really set the table. And then she went out saying, okay, if we're going to do this, what resources are available? And then she found the commission. And I remember Dr. John Fagan and a gentleman named Ken Fisher was kind of my first, you know, counselors and advisors. And, you know, just, you know, I just, they just stepped up every way they could. You know, they put things in front of me and they hold me to task. If I wasn't using my equipment enough, you know, they, you know, they kind of tapped me in the head and said, you know, this is going to make life easier. You know what I mean? Stop trying to act normal. You're going to have to realize over life. And I think this is one thing that people with disabilities, especially blindness, have to understand that we, we always have to have a level of dependence that other people don't have to have. And you can resist it or you can accept it. And, and, and to be honest with you, the sooner you accept it and understand it, the better. Uh, because it's just the life we have to live will be with a little bit more dependence. Nothing we do. It's funny. Like, I don't need a driver. Yeah, but I have Uber. That's just someone else driving you, right? right. I need someone to help me around. I have Aerie, you know, but yeah, that's just someone else. Instead of FaceTiming your family to help you see something, it's some other stranger. So, you know, there's, you know, we're always going to be a level of dependence until science, you know, until we have self-driving cars and other things that can really, really help us, um, you know, to be truly, truly dependent. Independence is defined differently for us, but it, it will always have an increased level of dependence involved with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, but a along the way, it it sounds like you've you've had a good combination of both. I mean, you had to go out for the football team, you know. Yes. Um, but they also had to be willing to give you a shot. So it's it you've had a nice combination of of persistence and also people that are willing to have an open mind, as you had said. Yeah, and and, and you know, it's interesting because assistant football coach was the wrestling coach. So when I went out for wrestling you know, something different as well. And back then, and I used it all through high school, there was a rule in the book that said you had to do a touch start. So you, you faced each other and you had to do one palm up, one palm down. And when you broke that, that touch or that grip, the person had to come forward. They could break like circle around. So I used that and it actually was my advantage because I was more of an upper body wrestler. So it gave me the chance to stay tight to somebody versus them getting distance and kind of shooting from the outside. So yeah, wrestling is all well sports, bro. The two men enter, one man leaves. No excuses, you know. So uh, I enjoyed that and, and enjoyed that sport. But, yes, I mean, that kind of gave me the confidence in areas where I didn't have confidence. Athletics helped me build a little bit of a foundation confidence to risk. And then also my family. I mean, you know, if I ever fell in my face to pick me up, dust me off and keep me going. So having that, that support system, knowing that I could take risks and not be out there on my own, uh, really helped me along the way to, to kind of take the chances that I took and, you know, kind of hung out there. You know, like I said, when I went to, I could have been, you know, interviewing for a job and teaching in a school system, which is perfectly fine. And I was looking at that, but, you know, put going to grad school, taking that risk and then being exposed to the world of, you know, private sector, corporate, you know, public sector, corporate life uh, gave me the chance to say, hey, let me go for it. You know, worst thing that happens is I fail. You know what I mean? And fortunately enough, I had some aptitude and my discipline and, Kind of my science education gave me kind of a mindset to attack this business in a, you know, in a logical way that allowed me to have a level of success and allowed me to progress from, you know, from being a sales or up through now I'm in my 16th year of managing offices. And I, I manage the largest office in the country for a Fortune 20 company. So, you know, yeah. it's given me opportunities to do that. And, and, you know, and also I've been fortunate to have the success that I've had. Yeah, absolutely. In college, you, you, you talked a lot about your elementary school 
kind of, uh, and probably high school accommodation. What kind of accommodation did you get in college? That was really interesting because when I was getting recruited to play football, I was not a good high school student. I mean, let me be honest. I had a below 2-0 average. That was maybe like a 950 SAT. And I went to school, St. Lawrence University, that, you know, average entrance was 3-5 and a 1,200. So what, we got, what got me in was sport. And, and a coach that was a good sales guy. Let's put it that way. I think that's my first exposure to sales. But, I, you know, I always showed some aptitude. And so that's why you know, they took the risk on me. And when I got there, I said, oh, we have this, you know, student disabled program. Don't worry about it. And I got there. And what I found out, there was really no program. There was just money. Okay. And so I had to go find people, you know, so I had to go to every teacher. Remember one of the first circumstances I looked into with some of my teammates, I go to like an English 101 class, you know, and I go in and the guy's like, oh, he hands out a paper. He goes, okay, read the sentence and tell me what's wrong. And I said, excuse me, professor, I meet you outside. You know, I wasn't very confident. Now I'd be, I just, I just blurred out, Hey dude, I'm blind, but I wouldn't do that back then. So can I meet you outside? And the guy's like, well, you have a problem. You can leave. And finally my teammate said, no, sir, you need to talk to him outside. So I pulled him outside and I'd have to have that conversation with every professor in every class. And then we'd have to figure out what accommodations made sense. And then I went around and tried to find the best student in order for them to help me either get the notes, you know, or to, to read the texts, you know, cause again, Back then, I didn't have time to get the text and get them recorded in time. So I had the money. I just had to find the people. And so I had to become much more you know, independent in that regard. And I struggled a little bit early on, to be honest. I mean, you know, I had to maybe a 2-0 average after three years of school and only completed half my credits. And then finally, my dad pulled me aside and just said, son, you got to get serious. You know, you already got a big enough challenge, right? Being blind, it ain't going to be good to not have a good education either. So as I went back to school and I did a full load for the last two years, I averaged a three, five, you know, I kind of just proved myself I could do it, you know, and then when I went to grad school, I mean, I completed all my coursework with a four row. So I knew I had the horsepower. I just wasn't tapping into it. I wasn't challenging myself. And, you know, I was just trying to slide by. And I, as I'd say now, when I talk to, to, you know, kids or talk to my daughter, I said, you can't do the minimum and expect the maximum, you know? Right. And for me, as people know me today, I don't engage in anything unless I can give it a hundred percent. And, and, and not that I have to be the best, but I have to do the best I can, because otherwise I feel I'm, it's, you know, it's not, I'm not showing, I'm not honoring, you know, myself, my family, the people who put all the energy into me. If I'm going to do something, I you know, 50%. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't, I'm not a person who can do 10 things all at one time. I do two to three things and I try to do them as well as I can. And that's allowed me to, to achieve some of the success in different areas. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of good good advice that's a lot of good advice right there uh, thank you for sharing that you have but, to, you, you have to you have to be one you have to be intentional you have to do things on purpose and have a plan you know the old line is if you don't plan to succeed you plan to fail and you have to go in with some intention you have to have some dedication you have to have some trust in yourself and belief in yourself because you have to believe in yourself before anybody else will believe in you so it starts with you and you have to build that through small successes in life. And it could be a simple thing as, you know, like I said, where I started was in the weight room. I started lifting. I got strong. I want to be one of the stronger guys on the team. That gave me a little bit of confidence. You know, if it's, a, if it's weight cutting, if it's, you know, education, uh, it, it, anything you can do to help build that confidence in yourself to take risks, you know, you need to do, because once you start believing in yourself, it's amazing to build other people because you're going to get doubters. I mean, I still get doubters today in, in my professional life. They always ask the question, how? And my mm -hmm. statement to them is, how is not your problem? If I'm a qualified guy to do the job, 
You put me in the job. I don't get it done, then you fire me. But don't sit there with your set of circumstances and understandings and try to figure out how I'm going to do it. That's not your problem. That's my problem. You know, mm-hmm. I commuted into New York, you know, for 10 years every day, back and forth, commuted all over the city by myself as a cane user, not cane user, you know, type thing. Now it gets harder. I've lost more vision over time and I didn't become a cane user to probably about nine or 10 years ago. And that has its own set of challenges. I tell people I've kind of gone blind twice in my life, you know, now I've been legally blind and now I've lost most of my vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been an adjustment. It's not easy, brother, but I got no choice. I got a family. I, I, you know, I got, I got to support the family, support my, my, my child. And, you know, I, I can't just tap out, you know, and, you know, I'm going to go as hard as I can until I can't go anymore. And, and at some point in time, it's like that movie Moneyball, right? We're all told we can't play the game. It's just when. Well, I'm not ready yet because so many of my friends have advised me, oh, why don't you just go on disability? Why don't you just do that? I'm like, you know what? I just can't like, quite rationalize that right now from where I'm at. I still believe I can do it. I still believe I can be good at it. So I'm going to keep fighting yeah, until I feel I, I, I've run that course as far as I can take it down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. With, with In college, you mentioned you weren't sure exactly what kind of career you wanted to pursue, but you, I guess you were just pursuing classes that you were interested in. Is that right? Yes, correct. I love biology. I love the, the body and figuring out how, what, why. Uh, it was fascinating to me. At first, I wanted, thought I wanted to go into physical therapy. I had a cousin who went in that direction. And, uh, you know, I thought that would be the direction I wanted to go. Didn't really work out that way. When I went back to grad school, the whole strength coaching thing came in. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. Uh, and then I, you know, my, again, my brother went out when he got drafted, my brother played 14 years in the NFL. And when he got drafted by Kansas city, I went out to visit him and I met the strength coach and uh, those guys are making real money and I'm talking to him, but then an aha came along and it said, well, these guys are only around as long as the coach is there, the owner is there, the manager, the GM's there, you know? So bottom line, if the coach gets fired, half the time the strength coach gets fired and I'm sitting there going, I don't want to live that kind of nomadic life of, bouncing from here to there and everywhere, you know? So mm-hmm. I said, you know, as, much, as sexy as it sounds to be a pro strength coach, I don't want to, I don't want to have to have my bags packed at a moment's notice. You know, I can be doing a great job and unfortunately something else doesn't work out and I'm on the street. I didn't want to live that way. So I just want to kind of decided that as much as I enjoyed it, I didn't want to go in that direction. And in the meanwhile, you know, I got exposed, you know, to the, this uh, insurance industry and this kind of niche business that group benefits is, uh, we're kind of wholesalers working through brokers. So we're not retail. Harrison McCorney saying, what are you doing at six o'clock at night? I want to talk about your future. I am working with, you know, middle people who want us and, and, and would like us to quote, quote on their business so that they can find the best solutions for their clients. So it's kind of a warm calling, not a cold calling scenario. And mm-hmm. so it's very, you know, it's a much more enjoyable business and it's a very social business. And my two brothers are funny because they both tell their, their kids, you know, why don't you look at insurance? Because your Uncle Kevin's done okay with it. And I told them, I said, listen, guys, there's three reasons why I love this business. I said, one, we sell a good product. We sell a product that protects families and lives. You know, people, if they are no longer there, their families are protected. Or if they can't work anymore, their families are protected with, with the insurances that we do. I said, two, it's a social business. I enjoy it. It's about people. You know, you're out, you're entertaining. You know, you're making connections with people. You're working together in partnership to get best results. And I said, three, it's competitive. You know, like I said, if I'm twice as good, I want to make twice the money. Um, and that, those are three basic reasons why I love the business uh, and, and move forward. And, and it's amazing. It's still today. You know, we have just got hired a, a couple of new young people bringing on the team. And I have my whole Manhattan office is all children of insurance people. 
And none of them went to school thinking that's what they were going to do. I didn't go to school thinking that's what I was going to do, but they kind of find their way into it. And it just fits a very, very good niche of people who are competitive, who like to be social and have, you know, have a good level of intelligence and relatability to work with people. Uh, it's a, it's a fun business and it builds on itself. You do build, you know, some credibility in the marketplace and you can kind of, you know, build up a bank account of reserves, so to speak with people over time so that you can rise yourself to the top. So I tell them you got to work really hard in the beginning and you never stop working, but toward the end, you know, you can work a lot smarter and you don't have to work that harder. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All those connections you've made over the, the many years that you've been doing it are continue to pay off. Exactly. Exactly. As long as you perform for them, they'll perform for you. So mm-hmm. um, the one I do want to step back a little bit, because the one thing I did want to say when I went to grad school and I went to Penn State, the good thing there was the total opposite of what I experienced in St. Lawrence. Their, their students, the, the disabled the department for students was phenomenal. You know what I mean? So where I had to go find everybody before, they were finding everybody for me, you know, and, and it was it was a phenomenal program. They helped me through graduate school. And the system I used in graduate school was I would tape the classes and then I would go home and do condensed tape notes, you know. So I went to a, a, a total audio environment, really trying to minimize any print exposure because I still could read him with a CCTV, but brother it was so slow, you know, right, it was not right. a productive environment. So the good thing about that was within 24 hours, I basically had been through the class twice. In that, you know, so it really reinforced it for me. And so in grad school, the nice thing about that, the concentration, I mean, I loved physiology and biomechanics and all the things, you know, motor learning and all the things we studied was just right in my wheelhouse. So you just kind of, you know, it's like eating, if you like cheeseburgers and chicken parm, eating that every day, you know? And so I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, it was a great experience. And I had an opportunity, one of the professors actually wanted to bring me to do a fellowship, uh, do a PhD over at Yale. And I'll be honest with you, brother, I was just kind of tired of academics and I kind of wanted to get to the real world, so to speak. So I did pass by that opportunity. Um, honestly, no regrets where I wound up, you know, somebody said, Oh, you couldn't, yeah, okay. But, but I, I think I found what I, what I was meant to do. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, you always got to measure opportunities and look at the end of the day and really know yourself just because it seems good. If it's not you, you got to be willing to say, you know, not my opportunity. So um, that was kind of one of the turns in the road that I that I faced coming out of grad school okay. before moving right. on. Yeah, but the the part that you mentioned about recording the classes and then listening to it and taking notes later, I haven't heard anybody else mention that. But that to me sounds like it. That would have worked for me, I think. And nowadays, especially with you know how you, you know everyone has a has a smartphone, as right. long as you get the the professor's permission, I'm sure they have no problem with you. Hey, I'm going to record the class. I'm going to listen to it later. I mean, that probably affords you the ability to really focus on what the professor is saying during the class, and then when you go back, listen to it again, take notes. That seems, I think, would have worked really well for me, had I had I thought of it. I mean, I I I didn't do that when I was in college, but that sounds like, uh, like really good advice. Yeah. Cause that's the, like you said, the moment you even look down to take a note, you can't be focused on what, what they're saying, you know, mm-hmm. and, and most professors, some are good at pausing, you know, at the key moments and give you, you know, 10 seconds, some are horrible at it. So I had, yeah, I was the king of cassette tapes and batteries and, you know, and, and, and nickel cadmium batteries and rechargers. I mean, you know, I had this whole <laughs> system cause I had to have fresh batteries, fresh tapes, you know, uh-huh. And everything labeled, you know, I still had enough vision where I could just put a piece of the you know, athletic tape on it, labeled it, you know, by, you know, 
the motor learning 501, you know, that was my tape. And it just made it really easy. You know, at the, you know, when I started to study, the other thing I picked up from study techniques is I started to start studying five, six, seven days in advance and maybe it would break it up into small pieces. And maybe I do 25% over the first four days and 50% next two, then a hundred percent the last day. The other thing I like to do is, you know, if I could get in study groups, because if I was able to help others understand it, then obviously I understood it. So I like working with others to try to, you know, say, all right, if I have a good understanding and I can explain it to others, then I'm good. And I had some basic rules when I took tests. I never stood beyond midnight. And an hour before the test, I shut everything down. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm just going to get my brain relaxed and ready to go. I'm not going to cram to the last minute. If I don't know it by now, I'm probably not going to know it. And so I just had those, those simple basic practices, you know, that I would use as I was through grad school. And because I, I knew I'd just step up my game. I knew I'd struggled in, obviously, in high school and in my early years in, in, in college. And I had to figure out a system that made sense, worked for me. And again, a level of independence, right? Then I, with that system, I could do it at my pace, you know, and whenever I needed. And I always set the goal to myself that I had to do my notes for that class before the next class. So I basically, you know, had maybe 48 hours before the next class came up. So it gave me good discipline. One of the good things I picked up through sport in my life is I'm very disciplined in many ways of what I do. I mean, I still today will sit down around Christmas holiday time. I evaluate my annual budget. I set a budget for the next year. You know, I write everything down. When we, when I, when I, anytime I spend a dollar, I write it down and record it. I very disciplined and intentional around that aspect of my life. I mean, working out, same thing. I, I do four cardios, three lifts a week. I'm very disciplined how I do that. My eating's the same way. Now I give myself a break on the weekends, so I kind of earn the right. My obsessive compulsive personality is probably coming through, but I earn the right during the week. If I'm good during the week, then I get to enjoy the weekend, you know. And that's yep. a matter of good diet. I, 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 I you know, good. I keep my body weight fairly tight. I'm always weighing myself four or five times a week. Yeah, a little neurotic, you can say that. But those are the little things I do in my life. Keep certain levels of discipline across, you know, personal, financial, spiritual levels. I, I just set goals, and I'm very methodical. Uh, even in sport, I was never super explosive, you know, as far as I go out there and knock you out in ten seconds. But I'd grind you down. So over a six-minute match or a five-minute judo match, you know, by the, th- you know, three and a half, four-minute mark, I've just wore you out, and now you're mine. You know, that was yeah. always. I was never a guy who went out there just went bang, took you down. Okay. All right. Yeah, I like that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your, your strength training job. So your brother kind of introduced you to, uh, that world, but what was that interview process like? And was your vision a factor in the interview process? I would say that it was interesting. I always try to disarm people early on, you know what I mean? Because then technically even today you can't ask those questions in interview environment, but Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, now it'd be very obvious and come on, walking and banging a stick around. You're going to know there's, there's, you know, there's something going on. But back then, you know, the guy just asked me to walk around the room and show like what I could do. And again, my vision back then, I was probably 24, 20 over 400 and probably at 20 degrees of field, 25 degrees of field. So I had decent vision. The only thing I couldn't do is record on the cards. So they used to keep a record on cards of the workouts. Mm-hmm. So it's funny when I first started to work there. All the other strength coaches would take the clipboard, take the car to walk around, right? When I got out of hand to the, to the athlete and say, all right, you're doing the recording. 
and they couldn't figure it out for a while. Like, what's going on? Why are you different? You, you, they thought this guy's a little bit of a jerk, right? So no, actually, one of the wrestlers came up to my coach and said, "Man, what's up with your guy?" And he said, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "Hey, when he's in the room, he's engaging. He's friendly." I was walking down the street and I waved to him. He just walked right on by me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got to let you know that he has, he has a vision problem. You know, it's like, oh, now I get it. Now I get it. But uh, yeah, so it was a little bit different. And he didn't, you know, I tell you, Chet Furman was the head strength coach at Penn State at the time with the football program. Later, I went to the Pittsburgh Steelers to be their head strength coach. Um, and he, he just said, I just, need, I just need to be comfortable. And I said, that's fair. You know what I mean? Because I, I, the last thing I'd ever want to do is hurt somebody. And mm-hmm. so he put me through a couple paces, had me work out some people. And he was comfortable with you know my my ability to to not only execute the workout but make in a safe manner, and so yeah he he gave me the opportunity and uh, you know and the nice thing was I mean it was you know it was my first pseudo big boy job from the standpoint I got paid a stipend so they paid my tuition and I had you know I got you know eighty seven hundred dollars so eight seventy a month for ten months which basically would cover my board and give me a couple bucks a month you know so I can go out to eat and things like that so. Uh, you know, first time I had the budget for myself and you know, live, live under a restricted budget. You know, it wasn't, hey, being called that anymore for allowance or anything at that point. And then over the summer, I had to find something to do because it, it was only a 10-month appointment, and I had to earn it every year. So, you know, it was the first time of really being in a good structured job environment. We had to perform, you know, and, you know, in the summer, I'd get jobs, you know, working per hour wages in the weight room. So I still was in the same department, um, and it just kind of gave me a good feel for it. And the, the interesting thing about Penn State, when I got the full-time job, they paid you once a month. I'm telling you, brother, you better be disciplined when you get paid once a month because you blow all your cash <laughs> your first weekend. The next three weekends are going to be awfully long for you. So yeah. it really taught me how to really, really structure myself to say, all right, I got to break this into four parts. You know, And it's not like today I get paid every, every other week, which obviously is a little bit easier. But back then, yeah, it was once a month. I'm like, wow, this is kind of harsh. Because I have yep. a bad first weekend and I'm eating ramen noodles for the rest of the month. <laughs> and then with your job at Cigna, uh, you know, how was that interview process? And what was your vision like at that time when you interviewed for that, that position? So when I started with Hartford uh, and went to the city, I was supposed to go to San Diego. And uh, you know, I was supposed to go to West Coast. And eventually the head of sales said, no, he's, a, he's an East Coast guy, he's a Jersey guy. We have we struggle with people in New York. He's going to New York. So when I showed up to New York, it was August 6, 2001. And my office was uh, World 7, number 7 building World Trade Center. So I oh. was there that day at 9-11. Wow. And I was on the 19th floor. My window overlooked both buildings, the North and South Tower. And I didn't see the first plane hit because I was actually going to the men's room. Um, I heard it, didn't know what it was. When I came back, I was on the phone talking to one of our people in Denver and all of a sudden the second plane hit and that fireball they showed basically came you know right out of the window just above our window and then stuff started to hit hit our windows uh, as far as debris so it was a very sobering moment and living through that that scenario uh again they had worked with me so they knew me there still were some reservations i'll be honest with you i did presentations for the company for approximately six years and it went to hire me the lawyers are like, well, how's he going to do presentations? And the guy just kind of laughed. He goes, we've well, been paying him for six years to do them. What are you talking about? You know, so <laughs> it, it, getting on the Hartford was interesting, I, even though they knew me very well. When I was at Hartford for 11 and a half years, I started as a rep in New York, a small group rep. Then I became a large group rep. And then I went over to Jersey, managed that office for five years. And then they brought me back to manage the office in New York. And at that time, you know, business-wise, it was just post-2008. 
you know, our company was struggling a little bit because we were kind of the biggest, you know, biggest and strongest, uh, you know, animal on the street at the time. Unfortunately, when the, when the, you know, the 2008 crisis hit, we got hit the hardest. So we were struggling at the same time, a good friend of mine who had actually got me the job at Hartford had gone over to Cigna and he kept telling the Eastern RVP, why don't you talk to Kevin? Why don't you talk to Kevin? He kept blowing it off. Well, that guy wound up leaving. Another gentleman came in and then he called me and he said, why don't you come have a conversation with me? And I did. And I kind of liked them. And at that time, Cigna wasn't as big as they are today. They were kind of, they were kind of going the up escalator, the way I describe people. I kind of jumped off the down escalator onto the up escalator. Um, and he also was combined as the first time ever I was working with a medical. So when you talk about ancillary coverages, you know, basically group insurance breaks down to two pieces, property casualty, which is all the liabilities, the buildings and that kind of stuff. And then group benefits, which is your medical, dental, life, disability, vision, all those products. And Harford only did life and disability on the ancillary side. Cigna had the medical and dental. And obviously the medical is, is your biggest you know, financial piece to consider. So there's a lot of advantages going to that company and having that ability to work with the medical and dental side to do package sales, you know? And so that was exciting. And when I first got there, you know, for the first two or three years, I mean, Cigna was really, really hot. The unfortunate thing with, with our business, the bigger you grow, the tougher it is to keep growing. You know what I mean? So if you want to grow at 6% every year, Okay, six percent of a billion. Uh, okay, it's great, sixty million. Yeah. Now, you want to go six percent of four billion? That's two hundred forty million. You know, and so it gets harder and harder to hit those numbers. And so, as you know, we grew, and you go through the natural evolutions of the businesses. You kind of grow. You get to a point. You get a little bit more financially, you know, uh, conscious. You kind of purge some of the business. You retool, and then you go again. So there's always these cycles in business. I went through it when I was at Hartford. I've gone through it one time here and now at Cigna, but they had a lot of good things to offer. And so the interview process, to get to your point, the gentleman already knew of my situation. My vision was probably, we're talking 2011, I was just starting to do cane work, you know, and mostly cane work at that point was, was at night or dusk, you know, was I was having the issues during the day wasn't as much. So although I, I did the interview, I did, didn't need necessarily have to use a cane at that point. There definitely, you know, he could tell by my mannerisms that I wasn't just trucking down the aisles and you know, walking around the conference room, but they were well aware. And again, that's one thing I always said, anytime I interviewed, honestly, the first thing I would say to people is, listen, here's my situation. If that's a problem. Let's stop now. You know what I mean? I didn't want to play this game of going, you know, five steps down the path. And all of a sudden I go, what? Even though they can't ask legally and everything, they can't ask, but you know, let's be honest guys, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think you start with your reputation about being honest and saying, listen, I want you to ask all the questions you want to ask because I know you want to ask them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I don't want you not to ask them. And that precludes me from the job because they're never going to say, hey, Harrison, you didn't get the job because you're blind. <laughs> never going to yeah. say that, you know, right. but right. they'll just say, oh, I wasn't qualified. I had a better candidate or whatever. So I'd rather just say, hey, listen, ask your questions. Ask me how, because how, the big thing I said to you before for us is how they can ever figure out how we're going to do it because they could barely do it themselves. And I used to tell people, well, that's how it's successful in business early on. Because they're going, how's this blind guy doing it? And while they're figuring that out, I'm selling cases. You know what I mean? So while you're trying to figure out how I'm doing it, I'm just going to do it. You know, at the end of the day, I'm just going to give the results. And the nice thing about sales at the end of the day, it's like a report card. Just all about numbers, baby. You know, how much did you sell? What kind of profit did you bring into the company? You know, and bottom line is it didn't matter what you looked like. Once the numbers were good, they were happy about it. So it was a little bit easier that time around because that had been fully vetted. 
and honestly, the, the you know sidebar story to that is my head of sales was good friends uh, with the person that worked at Hartford at, that led the whole division, and they had talked. And and one thing he told me after the fact, he said, you know, his name was Ron Gender. Because Ron gave you you know the stamp of approval, which is all he needed to hear as far as you know how's this guy going to do it. He says, don't worry about it; he just gets it done. So that yeah. that also helped. Absolutely, absolutely. So day to day, what kind of tech are you using to help you get your job done? I mean, going from my bedroom to my office to the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right now, not, not a transportation going on, but no, in 2018, I went to my boss and I was commuting into New York every day and I was losing more vision, full-time cane user. And, and it became, I'll just be honest, it became difficult for me, you know, and maybe being an older gentleman, little less confident, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't, when you're younger, you don't want to get banged around and tripped around as you get older, you get a little more conscious with a family, a young one to take care of. And I just said, I said, I said, you know, my boss, listen, we have an office in Jersey. I'd rather be based in Jersey, you know, and I'll go to New York, you know, a couple of times a week. So, you know, thank you. know, They supported that. They made the ADA accommodation. So I got based in Jersey. So when I got based in Jersey, uh, my transportation was Uber, you know, I'd Uber back and forth, uh, to the office, uh, which wound up being a blessing. I mean, Uber for me was huge because yeah, yep. every other time I got a job and the one reason I live in Milburn, now Short Hills, was because when I got the job at Hartford, New Jersey, I was on the wrong train line. So I would have had to move from my hometown to the right town to get on the right train line. And that's what I tell people, like, you know, normal person decides to change jobs. They just, instead of going north, they're going south. They're going east, they're going west. For us, it's a whole challenge. Okay, transportation logistics, right? Uh, Uber solved a lot of that for me. And, I, I, you know, so that's my independence from transportation perspective. So that's why I'd use back and forth uh, every day to get to work and, and meetings and things like that. And or obviously if some of my team was going to a meeting and going by my house, they'd pick me up. And my team's very understanding about that stuff uh, around that. Technology uh, is JAWS. I used to be able to do Zoom text. Uh, now I have Magic and JAWS. I use the visual stuff very, very little. Uh, you know, just because my vision is so low and it has to be the perfect circumstance. So for me, in bright sunlight, I'm all but total. You get me in a dim room, that's probably the best environment for me. I'm not going to see everything, but I'll see the, the good contrast things, you know, the, 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 the black chair on the white rugs and those kind of things. Yeah. So I'm, I'm totally Jaws. Uh, and then I use the iPhone, you know, and all its functionality. And that's really it. Uh, you know, and obviously Kane. So those are, as far as equipment, it helps me get my job done today. That's it. And then just, you listen, being patient. One thing I blindness has taught me, which I was not good at as a young man was patience, uh, forethought. You know what I mean? If I'm only going to get one ride and I have to do everything I need to get done, I better plan well, you know? So it, it, it really forced my mind to be very logical, very structured. Um, and then also from a, from a, you know, I have to be patient, you know what I mean? Because especially when people are willing to help you, if, if someone's willing to help and you show up 10 minutes late and you're reading the right act, I don't think they're going to help you the next time around, right? You just got to roll yep. with the punches. Sure. Uh, and and I needed that. You know what I mean? I was a little bit of an intense, aggressive, you know, young person. And uh, I, I think it really helped, you know, helped me with that. So, you know, those are the tools. And, you know, there are challenges in the business world. I mean, you know, I could work with Excel and those things, but PowerPoint, that's a tough one. You know what I mean? And so in those cases, I have to use assistance. And you just have to know when you're in your realm and when you're out of your realm. And I'm not the greatest of techies, you know, I, I, you know, I, do, I could definitely grow in that area, especially as technology consistently advances, you know, the, as I love you, every time you do an upgrade for Word or for, you know, uh, you know or for, uh, you know, uh, Outlook and those kind of things, it's a pain, right? Because you memorize, you know, we're memorizers, right? Hey, I know the process, yeah. memorize it. 
oh, we've improved it. Yeah, you improved it, but you screwed me. Now I got to go back in and relearn this whole thing. You know what I mean? So yeah. uh, that's always a challenge. And as you get older, you know, I hate to say your brain gets a little less pliable in some of these things. And uh, but yeah, those, you know, I have a good support system. I'll be honest with you. my team and and the people who work in there. They get it. They understand. The leadership team gets it. They understand. So uh, I'm not saying they make exceptions, but they they're a little more flexible with how I have to get things done compared to what the norm is. Um, still within compliance and legal, but you know, uh, you know, sometimes I have to use assistance of someone on the team to do something of official capacity that normally wouldn't, you know. So they're very understanding about that. Like the work from home, I mean, they get it. You know, this this for me, although it's the mundaneness is kind of driving you crazy after a while. The transportation is one of the biggest logistical hassles for for me. You know, so yep. you know, you take that equation, and again, I can. The only thing we're really missing in my business in today's you know pandemic environment is the social aspect. We do probably 50% of our job of meeting with our clients and our brokers and entertaining and meet those things have all gone away. And for the social people in the business, which is a lot of them, cause that's why they like the business, you know, that's, that's the struggle. But the technical side, we can do with a phone and a computer. I can do it anywhere. I don't have to be in an office, you know? So, right. um, like our New York location, you know, I don't know when we're going to get back into our Manhattan location and we're in, we're in the midst of being sold at the same time. So, They've sold us to a new company. We're very excited about that. But unfortunately, pandemic has slowed that process down, you know, through, you know, technical things like regulatory improvements and everything else. It's kind of drugged the whole thing out. But, uh, you know, it, it's going to be interesting. I don't know when New York will open up. You know, uh, we have to get a different office space in New Jersey. We're working through that. So I would say we may not be in physical offices again, you know, anywhere for, say, April 1st to July 1st. So, Think about when this whole thing started, you think you'd be working from home for over a year. Um, yeah, know, I, I couldn't fathom that, you know, and we have yeah. 3,200 employees all working from home. You know, we have a couple essential people that have to be in the office for some things, but this whole business went remote and pretty much didn't lose a step by doing it. Our, our IT people did a fantastic job of getting everything set up. And so it's interesting that I didn't, I wasn't, wise enough to know I was going to pick a business that was a little bit recession proof and a little bit pandemic proof. But fortunately, you know, it has been for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Let's just talk a little bit about what kinds of things you're doing for fun these days. Um, you know, as a, as a blind and visually impaired person in particular, but what brings a lot of joy to your life? Um, I would say, you know, on an individual basis, I do a fair amount of reading. I like to read. Uh, I, one book I just read that I enjoyed, especially Audible-wise, was Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights, because he did it. You know, so that I tell people when I suggest it, when I see like uh, different environments, I'm like, I love this book. I said, but I suggest if you're an Audible reader, do it Audible. Don't do a print, you know, because okay. you're going to hear it from the man's words himself. So I like podcasting, reading, uh, working out. Uh, obviously something I do, obviously I watch sports, you know, I'm a sports person. So I like the, you know, football, the UFC, those kinds of things I enjoy doing. Uh, normally my daughter is in sport. So I enjoy, she does softball. I enjoy supporting her with that right now. I'm going through training her. It's funny because she came and said, dad, you know, I want to get ready. She's a ninth grader. I want to get ready for the tryouts in the spring. I want to get a personal coach. And I said, that's fine. Cause obviously I can't do it with her. But I said, now you're going to learn about off-season, preseason, and on-season. She goes, what do you mean? She goes, well, in the off-season, you got to get in enough shape, right? So if I pay for a personal coach, say for an hour session, you're going to do 20 minutes of it. We've wasted 40 minutes because you're out of shape, you know? And I don't right. mean this in a mean way. It's just practical. I said, you know, we got to get you fit. 
so now we started training where, you know, we're doing some cardio work and some strength training work for November, December, so that we can get her to personal training January, February, and then she has her tryouts in March. So, you know, doing that, usually, you know, enjoy supporting her in her sports and all that and uh, those kinds of things. A little bit of travel. I enjoy, you know, I enjoy friends, you know, and, and spending time with friends and family. So, you know, my wife's from Puerto Rico, so, you know, we haven't been there in a while because of, unfortunately, the, the hurricanes and things they, were, they haven't gone through. She will go down to visit family. But we visit friends around the area. Uh, I, have re- I actually reconnected with some of my old high school buddies. Uh, my old college roommates actually came to my house a couple weekends ago. So enjoy, you know, connecting with people and being social. Uh, the one thing I want to plug back into, for many years, I was part of the United States Association of Blind Athletes Board and kind of giving back in that regard. And once my daughter gets a little bit older, it's something I like to re-engage in, even here locally. You know, I don't know if it's Alliance Clubs or Elks Clubs, but to kind of do something to kind of give back. That's the one piece I think I've been missing. Uh, and I think, like I said, I don't do many things well. I do a couple of things real well and just have to realize when you have shelf space. You know what I mean? There's times to focus on one area. You can't do everything all the time. There are those maybe you're talented enough to do that. I'm not one of them. But, yeah, I definitely there's areas that it's, you know, when I get some shelf space, the daughter goes, moves toward college, I have space to do something. And honestly, you know, I used to play guitar. I own seven guitars that just collect dust right now. And I would like to re-engage in that. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not getting too many guitar teachers come to the house right now under the pandemic. So uh, I would like to try to re-engage and probably do that. I I enjoyed it before. But that challenge there was, I mean, reading music is going to be a challenge for me now. Because I never learned to braille as a kid, because I didn't have vision back in those days. They always kind of forced you to use vision you had. They didn't want you not to. So I never learned braille. And and at this point, you know, reading reading sheet music on a CCTV, it'd be very 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 slow process. So part of my thought is I got to figure out a system, you know, where I can absorb at the right speed whatever I have to 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 make the learning fun and not make it an arduous academic process. Um, but yeah, it's something else I think of, but that's the thing. I'm at an age too, Harrison, I'm 57 years old. I'm kind of trying to figure out what's next. You know what I mean? I'm on the back nine of my career. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out what, you know, I've had passion and enjoyed and loved what I've done all the way through. I mean, for so many years, it was never a question in my mind, what I was going to do. Never. You know, this is the next step, next step, next step. Now I'm kind of sitting there looking around going, I, I'm kind of struggling to figure out what's next and what's new. And I want to find that next passion. You know, and, mm-hmm. you know, so as I'm winding down, that's something I'm actively looking for. And I'm putting some pieces together here, like I just mentioned. Uh, but I'm still trying to figure out, you know, I think you have to keep yourself moving forward all the time. You know, because there's no such thing as standing still. You're either moving backwards or moving forwards. And I want to make sure I'm always moving forward. So, you know, as I come down, it may be doing something different. It may be working in the nonprofit world. I mean, I'll always be doing something you know, on a voluntary basis. We're still working. Um, just not to say in this, this genre, you know, uh, for me, I've kind of got to the point where I, I like it, I enjoy it, but I'm looking for new challenges and we'll see what pops up in the next say, three to five years that may take me a different direction. The one thing I am sure of is I don't like winter, so I will definitely be South. What's my okay. daughter's at high school? I'm, I'm going to warmer climates, cold Florida. <laughs> okay. 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 No, no chance of moving to Puerto Rico. It's interesting. I, I, it's funny. I asked my wife, would you go back to Puerto Rico? She's, you know, I love Puerto Rico with my people. And I've had nothing but positive experiences there. But there's just certain small characteristics of here that she enjoys. So I would say 
we might, you know, we might go visit it more often and maybe go for maybe a couple months at a time, but I don't think permanent residence. So my friend was trying to convince me that it's a lower tax bracket down there. And you're in the financial business. So am I, right? So we think in such terms and, um, somehow they're saying there's a, you know, so if he convinced me that that's a strong enough proposition, maybe we'll reconsider. Uh, the problem about Puerto Rico, tell you, brothers, man, I'd, I'd probably be 400 pounds though, man. The food is phenomenal. The people are great. Uh, so I'd have to be careful down there, but I, I do enjoy it. I've had, you know, I've been there probably 50 times over the years because I first met my wife through business. Puerto Rico used to be my territory, uh, out of Manhattan. And so that's how I got exposed to the, to the Island. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy it. I, mean, I have friends down there and, yeah, I've gone there. They've come here, and and we you know, really have a good time. But yeah, I'd say close. That's why Florida makes sense. It's close and uh, quicker flights and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it, you know, could happen. But I would say for right now, I think we're, we're focused on Florida. I like the deep sea fishing off the east coast of Florida, so that's one of the hobbies that I enjoy. That I didn't state before, but I do like fishing. Okay, all right, fantastic. Anything else that you would have liked me to ask that I didn't ask that uh, that you want to? share with people no i would just i would you know i would say that you got to find your own journey you know what i mean that that it's okay to learn from others before your own path you know because if you're trying to copy someone the best you'll be is a copy and i think you have to find your passion your love um you know to be honest part of my motivation was the financial aspects of it you know and and but that's not everybody's you know and we need all kinds in this world so Find your passion and try to try to do the best you can and you know, find your unique niche. And, and like I said, learn from others, but pursue your own path. And I think you'll be successful. I hope we can all learn something from my conversation with Kevin. For those of you in school, it's important to have good study habits. There was so much sage advice that Kevin shared, but something that really stood out in my mind was that you can't do the minimum and expect the maximum. And if you're going to do something, do it to the best of your ability. I hope you come back to hear more conversations with other blind and visually impaired people. And thanks for listening. <laughs>